So if you would take that, your handout and see where it says Historic Premillennialism by George Eldon Ladd. That is kind of one of the granddaddies of historic premills. So we'll just read through this. Uh, premillennialism is the doctrine stating that after the second coming of Christ, he will reign for a thousand years over the earth before the final consummation of God's redemptive purpose in the new heavens and the new earth of the age to come. This is the natural reading of Revelation 20, 1 to 6. Revelation 19, 11 to 16, pictures the second coming of Christ as a conqueror coming to destroy his enemies, the Antichrist, Satan, and death. Revelation 19, 17 to 21, pictures first the destruction of Antichrist and the hosts which have supported him in the opposition to the kingdom of God. Revelation 20 then relates the destruction of the evil power behind the Antichrist, the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, Revelation 22. This occurs in two stages, this destruction of Satan. First, Satan is bound and incarcerated in the bottomless pit for a thousand years that he should deceive the nations no more, as he had done through Antichrist. At this time occurs the first resurrection of saints who share Christ's rule over the earth for the thousand years. After this, Satan is loosed from his bonds, and in spite of the fact that Christ has reigned over the earth for a thousand years, he finds the heart of unregenerated men still ready to rebel against God. The final eschatological war follows when the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Then occurs a second resurrection of those who had not been raised before the millennium. They appear before the judgment throne of God to be judged according to their works. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Then death and the grave are thrown into the lake of fire. Thus Christ wins his victory over his three enemies, Antichrist, Satan, and death. Only then, when all the hostile powers have been subdued, is the scene ready for the eternal state, the coming of the new heaven and new earth. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to pick up where we left off last week, so this will be a very smooth transition for people listening on the podcast. Everything we covered last week, I'm going to be assuming today, uh, we're sort of working our way through arguments against the pre-mill position from the all-milk perspective. You look at the very last page, kind of that recap. Um, but following, we're following rabbit trails along the way, right? Uh, you'll recall the all-mill, uh, the all-millennialist argues that this binding of Satan in Revelation 20 is for a specific purpose. You look at verse 3, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. And the Amil will argue that this is precisely what happened when Jesus came the first time. And that the gospel has been proclaimed, uh, not simply to Jews now, but after Pentecost, to all the nations of the world. In fact, the worldwide missionary activity of the church and the presence of the church in most or all the nations of the world shows that the power that Satan had in the Old Testament to deceive the nations and keep them in darkness, it's indeed been broken. So with respect to the binding and the imprisonment of Satan in Revelation 20, that he should deceive the nations no more, that simply means that the gospel can now be preached effectively among the nations. Okay, what do pre-mills think about that? And I'm coming from that camp. Well, the phrase might mean that, uh, but it seems more consistent with the use of the word deceived especially in the book of Revelation, to say that there is active deception going on right now during the entire church age, which ends only when the millennium begins. So let's just actually read. I'll, I'll read it too. You don't have to follow along, but you can. But I'll just, let's read the verses, all the verses, that use the word deceive in this book, in the book of Revelation. I think this is insightful. Chapter 2, verse 20. 
But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and deceiving my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Chapter uh, chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Chapter 13, verse 14, the beast out of the earth. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Chapter 18, verse 23. This is the fallen is Babylon, right? And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in the presence had done signs by which he had deceived. Who did he deceive? Those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped this image. Now we come to our text, Revelation 20, uh, verse 2. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to what? Deceive the nations. It started again. That are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I would argue, just reading those texts in their sequence, in the context of the book of Revelation, it seems more appropriate to me to say that Satan is now, right now, deceiving the nations. But at the beginning of the millennium, his deceptive influence will be removed. Another awe-mill difficulty with the pre-mill position. In the awe-mill view, the scene described in verse 4 is in heaven. Uh, John says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Since John sees souls and not physical bodies, the Amil will argue this scene is occurring in heaven. But the fact that John saw souls in his vision does not require that the scene be set in heaven. Since these souls are a person who then came to life, who lived in the first resurrection, we should see these as people who obtained their resurrection bodies and who began to reign on earth. Moreover, Revelation 20, verse 1, indicates that the scene is focused on events on the earth, because it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Uh, But if the angel came down from heaven, then he carries out his activity on the earth, and the entire scene is set on the earth. And again, in verse 3, it talks about the nations, right? So that's, I mean, that's an important one, but it's relatively small. Let's look at a really big issue, all right? This is a determinative issue right here. Again, looking at George Eldon Ladd, he's, I get the grand old man of the pre-mills. He writes this. I'm just going to quote him at length here, okay? So pay attention. This is very important. The exegesis of the passage depends upon one's interpretation of verses 4 and 5. 
They, the persons mentioned earlier in verse 4, came to life. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead, dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. I mean, that's most, one of the most debated texts in the whole Bible, right? But the Greek behind the translation, they came to life, is just a single verb, uh, which could be also translated, they, they lived, uh, is this on. Uh, but what does it mean to live? What is he talking about? The entire interpretation of the passage hinges upon whether, upon the question of whether the first came to life and the came to life of the rest of the dead mean the same thing, namely bodily resurrection. Is it bodily resurrection in both instances there? What is the first resurrection? Is it a literal resurrection of the body, which a historic primo would say that's what it is, or a spiritual resurrection of the soul, which an Amel will say that's what that is. If we can find the answer to this question, we shall have the key to the solution of the millennial question in this passage. So says Lad. The spiritual interpretation of the first came to life cannot be objected to on the grounds that the New Testament does not teach any spiritual resurrection, for it clearly does. Now you hear that. I'm saying that as a pre-mill, okay? So is Lad. The, the New Testament does speak of spiritual resurrection. Ephesians 2, 1 to 6, teaches that we who were once dead in sins have been made alive and have been raised from the dead with Jesus Christ. This is clearly a resurrection of the spirit which occurs when one comes to faith in Jesus. Again, in John 5, 25 to 29, spiritual resurrection and bodily resurrection actually occur in the same context. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Same verb as in chapter 20. Uh, do not, chapter, uh, verse 28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. To those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here is first a spiritual resurrection, right? To be followed by an eschatological bodily resurrection. is plain as day. All male interpreters argue that Revelation 20 should be interpreted in a way analogous to John 5. But this passage does not provide a real analogy to the passage in the book of Revelation. There is this all-important difference. In John, the context itself provides the clues for the spiritual interpretation in one instance and the literal physical interpretation in the other. Concerning the first group who live, it says, the hour has already come. This makes it clear that it refers to those who are spiritually dead and who enter into life upon hearing the voice of the Son of God. This is all John 5. The second group, however, Jesus says, are in their tombs. They are not spiritually dead. They're physically dead. Such dead are to be brought back to life again. Part of them will experience a resurrection of life, a bodily resurrection into the eternal age to come. The rest will be raised to a resurrection of condemnation, of judgment, to the execution of the decree of divine judgment which rests upon them because they have rejected the Son of God and the life that he came to bring. The language of these words makes it indubitable. You never hear that word anymore, do you? (laughs) This means impossible to doubt. It makes these words indubitable that Jesus wishes his hearers to know that he is speaking of two kinds of living. Same verb we're looking at, right? A present spiritual resurrection, for sure. They hear his voice and live. 
you know, and a future bodily resurrection, they come out of the tombs. In Revelation 20, there is no such contextual clue for a similar variation of interpretation. The language of the passage is quite clear in Revelation 20. It's unambiguous. There is neither necessity nor contextual possibility to interpret either verb to live spiritually in order to introduce meaning to the passage. At the beginning of the thousand years, some of the dead came to life. At the conclusion, the rest of the dead came to life. That's what Revelation 20 is saying, I would argue. There is no evident play upon words here. The passage makes perfectly good sense when interpreted literally. This is reinforced by the fact that the same word is used in reference to coming to life twice elsewhere in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 2.8, we read the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Same word. Here is a clear reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Physical. In 13.14, we read of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Same verb. From 13.3, we know that the wound he received was mortal. It was a wound unto death. We must conclude that such passages as Ephesians 2, John 5 are not truly analogous to Revelation 20 and do not provide sufficient justification for interpreting the first verb spiritually and the second literally. Uh, Natural inductive exegesis suggests that both words are to be taken the same way, referring to literal physical resurrection. So says George Eldon Ladd. What about this? Does, in fact, Scripture teach only one resurrection so that believers and unbelievers will be raised at the same time? Well, uh, I would say it's hard to accept this when we realize that Revelation 20 explicitly speaks about the first resurrection, thus implying there will be a second resurrection as well. Speaking of those who came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years, we read, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first Resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The passage distinguishes those who share in the first resurrection and are blessed from those who do not share in it. They are the rest of the dead. And the implication is that the second death, that is the facing final judgment and being condemned to eternal punishment away from the presence of God, does have power over them and they will experience it. So, if this passage clearly teaches a first resurrection and the fact that the rest of the dead will come to life at the end of a thousand years, then there is clear teaching of two separate resurrections here in Revelation chapter 20. As for the other passages that all mills claim to support the view that there is only one resurrection, it must be said... Now, this is going to maybe sound funny, but these passages do not exclude the idea of two resurrections. All right? that's, that's what a pre-mill would argue for. There are actually two resurrections, one before and one after the millennium. Uh, but yeah, the scripture does speak about these resurrections, um, but it doesn't actually specify about the separation in time the way it does here in Revelation 20. Uh, in fact, the statements in John 5 does hint at the possibility of two Resurrections, right? The Lord says that those who are in their tombs will come forth, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil, to the resurrection of judgment. Do you see? A primo would argue those are two separate uh, resurrections. As for Daniel 12, too, it simply says that those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. But it doesn't specify whether this will happen simultaneously or at different times. 
It simply says that both types of people will be raised. The same is true in Acts 24, 15, when Paul says there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. This affirms that both types of people will be raised from the dead, but does not exclude the possibility that this would happen at different times. All of these verses that I just quoted there, in the absence of Revelation 25 to 6, might or might not be speaking of a single future time of resurrection. But, I would argue, with the explicit teaching of Revelation 25 to 6 about two resurrections, these verses should be understood to refer to the future certainty of a resurrection for each type of person without specifying that those resurrections will be separated in time. Folks, let me just say it again. I find the view that the first resurrection, according to Amiel's, refers to salvation and being in God's presence after the Christian dies and ruling with Jesus in the intermediate state for all of church history. That is highly, highly dubious, in my opinion. I find it especially difficult to believe that the millennium in chapter 20 refers to the whole period between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ with Satan supposedly bound during all this time in a bottomless pit, sealed over so that he can't escape. This is just so out of step. I said this last week. This is so out of step with the book of Revelation. I don't, I don't know what to say. I find it an unlikely interpretation of Revelation because that take on chapter 20 impacts our interpretation, obviously, of the rest of the book, the whole book. Uh, we need to see that, all of us. Whatever our eschatological position may be, if you're pre, post, whatever, um, Whatever we hold to on that regarding the millennium, it's not just this sort of hermetically sealed interpretation that applies to Revelation 20 alone. It's tendrils spread throughout the whole book. (laughs) And since I'm text-based first, since I want to work out of texts into a larger structure, I find that an unbelievable interpretation of Revelation 12 and 13. We don't have time to do it now, but on your own, maybe go home today and read those two passages back to back. Chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Revelation. Satan cast to the earth, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, and try to square it with an all-mill interpretation of chapter 20 and the binding of Satan in a bottomless pit for all of church history. I, I would say no way. It doesn't, it doesn't fly for me. Uh, that's my biggest objection to all millennialism. I don't think it squares with enough texts. Uh, and I don't think it squares following chapter 19 and the return of Jesus. Chapter 19 is not a recapitulation or a parallel account. It's not two ways of speaking of the same event. But in the all mill scheme, as we saw this last week, it actually has to be. That's not the return of Christ. It, it doesn't work otherwise. And so in my opinion, Amiel's force the text. They squish the text through their interpretive grid. They do violence to the text. George Eldon Ladigan. The Amiel system of interpretation does not see in the vision of 19, 11 to 16, the second coming of Christ. Rather, they see a highly symbolic portrayal of the witness of the word of God in the world through the church. This interpretation seems impossible, Lad says. The theme of the book of Revelation is the return of the Lord to consummate his redemptive work. Revelation 1-7, right at the beginning. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, everyone who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Revelation 19 is the only passage in the book of Revelation which describes the second coming of Jesus Christ. If this passage is interpreted differently, the book of Revelation nowhere describes the return of the Lord. 
Revelation 19 and 20 is a continuous, sequential narrative which describes the destruction of the evil trinity. First the beast, then the false prophet, and then the power behind those two, the devil. There is absolutely no hint of any recapitulation in chapter 20. And as I said last week too, in the Amil scheme, there is no explicit text that refers to the resurrection of believers. I don't buy that. I'm moving right along fast. It's time for Q and the end. I just got to push through. If you look at your sheet again, we're looking at the very last page. Objection number three. The idea of, a glorif- of glorified believers and sinners living on earth together is too difficult to accept. Okay, I grant you. <laughs> the idea of glorified believers and resurrection bodies and sinners living on earth during the millennium does sound strange. That sounds It sounds really strange, but it's certainly not impossible for God to bring this about. We must realize that Jesus lived on the earth with a glorified resurrection body for 40 days after his resurrection. Think about that. He wasn't popping up and down to heaven every time he left the disciples. He was living on earth in a resurrection body, and then he ascended at the end of 40 days. Think about that. And apparently there were many other Old Testament saints who lived with glorified bodies on earth during that time as well. Look at, look at Matthew 27, 50 to 53. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. What do you do with that text? Don Carson writes this in his Matthew commentary. uh, On several details we are told little. For instance, it is unclear whether the resurrection of the holy people was to natural bodies like Lazarus in John 11, or to supernatural bodies. The text doesn't say. The latter, Carson argues, is perhaps more likely. And in that case, they did not return to the tombs, and their rising testifies that the last day had dawned. Where they ultimately went, Matthew does not say. Were they translated? Nor does he tell us who they were, but the language implies, though it does not prove, that they were certain well-known Old Testament and intertestamental Jewish saints, spiritual heroes and martyrs in Israel's history. If so, then Matthew is telling us, among other things, that the resurrection of people who lived before Jesus Messiah is as dependent on Jesus' triumph as the resurrection of those who come after him. The idea is not fanciful given Matthew's grasp of prophecy and fulfillment, Matthew 5, 17. So, back to this idea of glorified believers and sinners living on this earth together during the millennial reign of Christ. It will indeed be a kind of world situation that is far different and far more God-glorifying than this world is now. But it doesn't seem we're justified in asserting that God could not or would not bring about such a state of affairs. I think there are good intentions for this, and you'll see this in objection number five in a few minutes. Moreover, number four, if Christ comes in glory, objection, to reign on the earth, then how could people still persist in sin? It's certainly not impossible that evil and secret rebellion could persist on the earth in spite of the bodily presence of Christ reigning as king. Judas lived with Jesus for three years in the closest terms, and he still betrayed him. Moreover, many of the Pharisees saw Jesus' miracles and even saw him raising people from the dead and still did not believe. 
In fact, even when the disciples were in the presence of the glorified Christ, we read that some doubted, Matthew 28, 17. Such persistent unbelief in the very presence of Jesus is hard to understand, but remember, Satan himself fell from an exalted position in the presence of God in heaven. When all mills object that people could not persist in sin in the presence of Christ's bodily reign on the earth, their position simply fails to realize the deep-seated and highly irrational nature of sin. It also fails to fully reckon with the fact that even massive proof and undeniable evidence cannot compel genuine conversion. Remember, remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? The guy says, oh, c- come to my, you know, send Lazarus back to actually warn my brother. They have Moses and the prophets. You know, even if someone comes from the dead, they won't believe. Sin is highly irrational. It affects our mind. Genuine repentance and faith is brought about by the enabling and persuasive work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts. Such is the irrational nature of sin that those who are dead in trespasses and sins will often persist in rebellion and unbelief, even in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. This is not to say that no one will be converted to Christ during the millennium. I get the, the text doesn't speak to this. Explain, but I personally, I believe, I believe billions, billions of people will come to become Christians during this time. And the influence of the reign of Christ will permeate in every aspect of society on the planet. Yet at the same time, it's not at all difficult to understand how evil and rebellion will grow simultaneously. Amil objection number five. There seems to be no convincing purpose for such a millennium. Once the church has ended and Christ has returned, then what is the reason for delaying the start of the eternal state? I can think of several. Perhaps God, in his great forbearance, is still providing opportunities for people to turn, to turn and to not die. It wouldn't surprise me. I I think many, 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 many people will be converted during that time period. Uh, It's possible that generation after generation of people will be saved. Through that, throughout the millennium. So that could be one reason for a millennial reign. God, in his great forbearance, is providing one last opportunity for people to believe the gospel. At the same time, this millennial reign could be, may turn out to be a part of a, the, the vindication of God. Because suppose someone were to argue, if we just had a just rule, if we just had fair government, we'd be all right. We could withstand the devil and all his, all his uh, cohorts. If things were structured properly in this world, we'd be okay. You know, it's the education system. It's this, it's this, you know. Well, it may be that God will see to it for a while that things are structured properly, absolutely perfectly. <laughs> uh, but then when the devil is set free for a short time in verse 3, it all blows apart. In which case it becomes part of the vindication of God, the justification of God, which shows beyond all doubt that there is nothing, finally, that we can do to redeem ourselves. Even if things are divinely organized for us, at the first whiff of temptation, we lose it all again. What's required, finally, is nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth. God taking decisive action at the consummation in a way that is irreversible, or else we'll blow it again. That says a great deal for God. It doesn't say a whole lot about us. Um, but that's a pretty constant theme, I think, in Scripture. Finally, the entire scope of the Bible reveals to us that it is God's good pleasure to unfold his purposes and reveal more and more of his glory gradually over time. God is not quick about things as we determine it would be quick. 
from the calling of Abraham to the birth of Isaac, the sojourn in Egypt and the Exodus, the establishment of the people in the Promised Land, the Davidic Kingdom, and the divided monarchy, the exile, and the return of the rebuilding of the temple, the preservation of the faithful remnant, and finally the coming of Jesus in the flesh. God's purposes were increasingly seen to be glorious and wonderful, but that didn't all happen in Genesis chapter 4. Even in Jesus' life, the progressive revealing of his glory took 33 years, culminating in the last three years of his life. Then in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, the completion of our redemption was accomplished. Yet the spread of the church through all the nations has now occupied 2,000 years. And we don't know how long it's going to continue. It could be another five. It could be another 10,000 years. All this to say, God's way is not to bring to realization all of his good purposes at once but to unfold them gradually over time. This is, this is so even in the individual eyes of Christians who grow daily in grace and in fellowship with God and likeness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just zap us at our baptisms. Therefore, it would not be surprising if, before the eternal state, God instituted one final step in the progressive unfolding of the history of redemption. Now, I'm giving you a theory here as to why God might do that, but it's based on the exegesis of the text. The text is saying it will happen. I'm trying to provide why would God do it that way, but it's going outside what the text is actually speaking to, so I acknowledge that. But it would serve to increase its glory as men and angels look on in amazement at the wonder of God's wisdom and plan. Finally, last, a major objection to the amillennial, to amillennialism must continue to be that the fact that it can propose no really satisfying explanation of Revelation 20. We're going to do an exegesis, a quick one. But just before I do, I just gave you a fire hose. Is there any questions? Maybe we just covered there. Okay. Exegesis of chapter 20, 4 to 10. Revelation chapter 20. New city, there is more ink spilled on this chapter than on any other chapter in the book. But strictly speaking, it's not as important as the last two chapters. Chapters... Uh, 21 and 22. On any interpretation, the millennium only lasts a thousand years, right? And in light of eternity, that's not long at all. To be clear, the glorious hope of the church is not the millennium. However you understand millennium. The glorious hope of the church is the climactic return of Christ that issues finally into the new heavens and new earth. So it's important to get that perspective right, right away. I think we've probably beaten the first three verses to death. But let me just say, for the sake of posterity, I said this last week again, but everything, absolutely everything, depends on what you do with the devil during this millennial period. Because the whole thrust of verses 1 to 3 is how the devil is constrained. So what we need to do, what we need to be asking before we get to verse 4 and following is, what is characteristic of the millennium? At this juncture in verses 1 to 3, how, what, how is it characterized? What does the text say? The devil is bound with a great chain. He's thrown into the abyss, the bottomless pit. Then, when he's in the abyss, the thing is locked and sealed over him so he can't get out. And all with the express purpose to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Until the thousand years were ended. It's strong language. I don't believe... I say this with humility. I don't believe all males appreciate its uniqueness to the extent that they should. Chapter 20 is different. It's different from chapter 12. As you can see in that, in that table that I included, 
underneath, underneath the map on the second last page. Uh, but Ah Mills say that it's the same. Ah Mills will say that chapter 12 and 20 is the same thing. I don't, I don't buy it. Um, what's the action in, in chapter 12? He is cast to earth in chapter 20, seas bound, thrown into a pit. Place of confinement in chapter 12 is earth. Chapter 20 is a bottomless pit. Who are his henchmen? Chapter 12 is angels with him. Chapter 20 is Satan alone. And then you compare that with the, in 1920, beast and false prophet in the lake of fire where Satan joins them in 2010. What's the result? In chapter 12, Satan makes war on the saints and deceives the nations over whom he has authority for 42 months. Chapter 20, no war on the saints, no deception of the nations, no authority for Satan and his beast. What's the time? In chapter 12, Satan has a little time to make war and deceive. Chapter 20, Satan cannot deceive the nations for a thousand years. After that, he will be released for a short period. But chapter 12 and chapter 20 in the Amil scheme is talking about one and the same event. I say no way. Things radically change for the devil and the people of God in chapter 20. I'm, I'm pounding my pulpit there, but on to verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What are we supposed to make of that? We now have in these verses the positive description of what takes place. It's the, it's the inverse to the negative description of verses 1 to 3. In verses 1 to 3, what primarily takes place is the tying up, the binding of Satan. In verses 4 and following, what primarily takes place is the reigning, the ruling and blessing of these people, whoever they are. I'm arguing that they're, <laughs> that they're Christians. But, uh, and now we have a whole nest of exegetical questions that have to be answered, all of which have books written on them, such as, what does it mean in verse 5, they did not come to life, or in the second part of verse 4, they came to life and reign with Christ. What, what does that verb mean? We looked at all that already. I'm just going to press on. Verse 4. I saw thrones on which, we, on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. John sees thrones which signify authoritative rule, and he sees people on the thrones who receive authority from God. And I saw the, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. And you may ask, are those who rule and reign in the millennium constituted solely of the martyrs? Now, there's some pre-mills who take that stance. Uh, you can make sense of it that way. Uh, there's probably nothing in the passage that you can use to rule that one out exclusively. Uh, in which case, if you're from that side of things, part of the millennium is kind of like an extra blessing for those who have served Christ by this particular means. Uh, they've been martyred, so they have this extra blessing. I don't think that's right. Uh, we see elsewhere in the book how John will start talking about the martyrs, and then pretty soon he's talking about all those who don't have the mark of the beast on them and stuff like that. Uh, the martyrs thus become a kind of elite symbolism for all the elect, all the blessed. Do you see how he describes it? I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Okay, all right. Does that mean then not all the martyrs, but only, only those martyrs who were beheaded. If we start getting really literal and pushing it that far, then we're not even talking about all the martyrs. 
right? We're just talking about, the, wait, what about those guys who have been burned or drowned or shot or stabbed or whatever? Uh, no, 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 it's only just those, only just those who died for Christ by being beheaded. They will be the ones who reign in judgment in the millennial kingdom. That's not likely. Uh, probably the beheaded is a symbolic way of referring to all those, in fact, who haven't borne the mark of the beast. And that's what the text says next, 4b. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And who does that describe? Who's that describing in the book of Revelation? In the book of Revelation, that is everybody who is faithful to Jesus, as opposed to those who have the mark of the beast, who are only faithful to the devil and not to Christ. There's this bifurcation in the book of Revelation, just the whole way through the book. You either have God's mark on your forehead, chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 14, verse 1, and bear the wrath of the beast as a result, or you have the mark of the beast on your forehead, and so you bear the wrath of God. That's through the whole book, it's like that. That's why I think it makes more sense to understand the beheaded as those who don't have the mark of the beast. It's simply a way of referring to the martyr crowd, that is to believers, those who don't have the mark of the beast. In which case, it's believers then who enter into this first resurrection, this bodily resurrection, which means necessarily there is delay between the first resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. Otherwise, what happens in that parenthesis doesn't make sense. The rest that they did not come to life. We, we looked at that. Now, if you ask at this point, do they reign on the earth? The text doesn't say, though the angel coming down from heaven, as I mentioned, in verse 1, and the mention of the nations in verse 3 would lead me to say, yes, they reign on the earth. Is this reign from Jerusalem? The text doesn't say. Is there a mixture of the resurrected crowd and the unresurrected crowd? Are they hanging out in restaurants and, you know, strictly speaking, the text doesn't say. Are people still getting married and having babies? text doesn't say. How about this? Do unbelievers in the millennium who then get saved and who then die at the age of 700 or something, are they also included in the rest of the dead of verse 5? What I mean is, does the parenthesis in verse 5 include unbelievers and believers who converted in millennium and also believers who converted during the millennium who don't die, but who are alive at the time of the end of the millennium? Very complicated, right? It does, the text doesn't say. Premillennialism is very messy when it comes to, what about this? What about this in millennium? What about that in millennium? How can you do that? If you have this, the text doesn't speak to it. And it gets messy, but it handles all the other texts very, very well. That's my argument here. But you ask questions like, who's having babies? Are we hanging out in restaurants and doing this kind of stuff? Text doesn't say. I can make guesses about it, um, but it handles the text better than any other position there is, for sure, I would say. What chapter 20 does say is that the Christians will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then in chapter 20, verse 7, Satan is released in the final battle. We're almost done. And when the thousand years are ended, verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison and, he, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, for the numbers is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this raises a whole other set of, inter of interpretive questions. All millennials who think that the millennium is bound up with this entire inter-advental period, the whole church age between the comings of Christ, um, they would say this, this is the final tribulation. 
but if for reasons I've already suggested that doesn't work, then we're constrained at this point to read it another way. How do we do that? Well, there are really two dominant approaches to this. There is, first, there's the literal approach. The approach that is bound up with classic dispensational premillennialism, pre-tribulationalism, is that this takes place in the Middle East. Now, I'm not advocating this, but this is, this is a very popular view. The holy city, the blessed city here, is Jerusalem. Gog and Magog must be peoples that are connected with the Gog and Magog of the book of Ezekiel. Gog, king of Magog, who is from somewhere up in the Assyria area, north. As a result, any number of books were written during the Cold War to argue that these are actually the forces of the USSR, and they come down and attack Israel. Uh, That's changed now to China. So it depends on who's who's on top. Um, This is going to be the Battle of Armageddon, and that is on the plains of Megiddo. This is the final outbreak at the end of the millennium, according to that viewpoint. I can't think of a simple way of saying that's wrong, but I'm not convinced. Then there's the symbolic approach. I think this is how we need to approach this. It's symbolic. When we, what we see happening over and over and over again in the book of Revelation is John using Old Testament characters and figures and places. Almost every verse has an allusion to the Old Testament. Almost every single verse. He uses it that way because in real history, there's something very analogous going on but it's, he's using them in a symbol-laden way. So a classic instance of this is Babylon, right? He's talking about Babylon all the time. Babylon isn't really Babylon in the book of Revelation. It's the Roman Empire. And then through the Roman Empire, any number of things that come along over and over and over again throughout church history. Gog, after all, was a real king in the ancient world. Gog, king of Magog. He was a real guy. But after all, the Assyrians are long gone by this time. But he's an Assyrian king. That's who they're talking about. There's no nation like that today, just as there is no Babylon today in that sense, just like there was no Babylon or Assyria in the first century either. You see, so everybody understood that. They understood that there was a, that there was a real Babylon. It's a real place. But as applied to the book of Revelation, it's no longer Babylon. It's a symbol-laden thing. And the first century readers understood this. And I would argue we need to do the same thing with Gog and Magog, just as they did the same thing. They weren't waiting for the Assyrian army to suddenly, or Gog, to, to, to rise from death and to attack them again. It's symbolic. Even Armageddon on the plains of Megiddo, where so many battles were fought again and again and again. If you look at that map of Israel, I mean, it's, it's a pretty poor one. It's very zoomed in, but you can see where it actually is a real place. Um, but it's right on the trade routes. To the west of Israel, we have Greece and Rome. To the east, we have the Tigris-Euphrates system with Babylon and all the routes heading east toward India and China. And to the south, it's the Arabian Peninsula with their fabulous wealth and Egypt, the greenery of the whole empire. All the roads come together through little Israel. And one of the best places that you can have chariot fights, sort of the ancient equivalent of tank warfare, is Megiddo. Thus it became a symbol-laden it became symbol-laden for the final clashes of the people of God against everybody else. So within that framework, within that framework, I'm inclined to think that the way the whole book has been using symbols all along the line, all the way through, I, I think um, wherever the people of God are, I'm not saying they're going to be in Jerusalem, right, but wherever they are, who have the resurrection bodies at this point, during this time of millennial splendor, there are people getting converted. There are people still coming into the kingdom, but there is such a violent outbreak against the city of God, that is against the people of God, that it is the antitype of all the clashes of the battles of Megiddo that have ever been. 
I think that's where it's heading. And then Christ steps in decisively and destroys them with the word of his mouth. That's it. (laughs) So, we have one minute. (laughs) Questions? Let me just preface this, all right? I'm not expecting everybody here to be absolutely convinced now of, of the historic pre-mill position. What I'm hoping this is, is like a snowball rolling down the hill, right? You just heard some stuff over these last two weeks that might add something to your own understanding of eschatology. It's like, yeah, there are sane people who think this and this and this. It's not just that. I need to actually do my own research and actually study this more over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years of being a Christian. How do I read the, about the events surrounding the return of Jesus Christ? Here's these, here's these positions. My... Pastor John, at this point, he believed that. I heard those things. I need to wrestle with that. But you do still want to engage with the text, right? You want to come to a, you, you want to come to a position on, on certain things, I think, in Scripture. It's not just all it's a big mystery. Really work at it. It, it might take decades. I, I, don't, I haven't arrived yet. But I'm, I'm, this is the first time I've actually preached this kind of stuff in 15 years. I've been a Christian now for 25 years. It's the first time I've done this. But I'm just, I need to do it at some point. That's why I've done it. So... Questions, though? Anything I can clarify? Yes. I have a question, John. Yeah. Just regarding uh, Revelation chapter 20, I'm not necessarily about the, the millennium, what happens after the second resurrection. So according to what uh, Revelation 20 uh, says, that at the second resurrection, people are going to be judged according to, to his deed, to their deed. So in your understanding, those people that are were converted during the millennium will be part of that, Okay, now see, you're getting into like the, that, that's the very question I asked. Like who's, who gets converted? They don't have resurrection bodies instantly when they convert, right? So they still have natural bodies, but then you're living 700 years because you're living this, you know. And I know that yeah. the text doesn't say yep. this. I just want to hear your understanding about Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm saying that pe- I, think, I think billions of people would be converted. It's a thousand years. It's a long period of time. Maybe, maybe it's a million years. Maybe it's five years. I don't, I, I don't know. Do yeah. Because I don't, I'm not sure. Well, anybody who, who isn't part of that first resurrection, who isn't a believer at that time, then they will be, they'll be part of that second resurrection after the millennium is over. So if you're a Christian, if you convert during that time period, unless you're saying they're going to instantly convert into suddenly be, be resurrected bodies instantaneously upon belief, which I don't think that's going to happen. So they, they can live. Maybe the, the millennium will end. And then there'll be resurrection bodies at that point for them. If I'm understanding what you're saying. Again, we're going into areas here where it's, it's messy. It's very messy. I want to kind of, you know, so I'm, I'm happy to answer the question. But what do you think? Does, does, that, sound, does that sound like it can't be? Or, or God couldn't do it that way? Or He can do whatever he wants, I guess. But <laughs> yeah. And for the, reasons, for the reasons that I gave. Actually, maybe, there's, maybe there'll be more people converted during the millennium than all the other centuries put together. Billions and billions and billions of people. People actually having babies. And, you know, if you died at 100, you're like, you're, oh man, you got, you got the, the shaft sort of. Like, that's amazing that you died at 100. You're a young man at that point. You're going to live to be 700, 800, whatever. It's actually, no, people are converting generation after generation. There's still babies being born. Dex doesn't say that, but I don't see why that couldn't be the case, right? And it's like, and then every generation. So there's 8 billion people in the world right now. Just imagine that, you know, populating, populating. And uh, under perfect government, the reign of Jesus Christ, king, wherever he's reigning. And lifespans are, you know, tremendous. And the, the government is perfect. He's reigning as king. It's, it's excellent. But there's still 
There's outward conformity to his rule, but inward rebellion. There's still a seething of that. But people are being saved in mass numbers. I, I would think that that, would be, that could be consistent, but I don't want to argue that from the text. I want to be very clear with that, guys. Like, I'm going way beyond what the text is saying here. So. In the final analysis, let's leave it at this. Really think through about what's happening in verses 1 to 3 with Satan and how that relates to the rest of the book of Revelation. That needs to be the starting off point. And then, coming to life. What does that mean? Do you have to do exegetical backflips to make it fit into a theological position that you like? Or can you just kind of read it in the context of Revelation and see differences between 12 and 20 and just say, oh, I'm actually prepared to go that way and actually have to deal then with kind of questions like what you're answering, asking there, Armando, which aren't comfortable questions. Like, it's, you know, it's that, it's that kind of stuff where it's like, ah, <laughs> who knows, you know? So, but it's, it's, it's got, you got to work out of the text first. Work from the text and let, let God maybe surprisingly change your outlook on things, right? So, anyway, next week, uncontroversially, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection. No one's going to have a problem with that. All right, thanks. Thank you for your patience. That was a real fire hose of a lecture.